This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello and welcome to um, our Health Talk series. I'm David Brenner. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at UC San Diego. Even though I miss seeing you in person terribly, I, I'm really pleased that you all have been able to join us, at least virtually, for this um, um, symposia. Um, a few quick Zoom um, housekeeping issues. Um, you'll see at the bottom of your screen a um, Q&A button. This is to allow you to ask questions. You can ask the questions anytime during any talk. Um, if we don't get to your question at the end, when we have a question and answer um, session, we will respond directly to you um, by email. Okay, so now this month, we are featuring members of our comprehensive breast health team. It's truly a team. There are more than 15 different disciplines represented in um, breast health. It's um, everything from surgery to medical oncology, pathology, radiation oncology, and many more. The more we learn of cancer and breast health, the more we've learned that team approach is really the most successful approach to take the best care of patients. October is Breast Health Awareness Month, and we're celebrating our survivors and our caregivers. Thanks again for joining us. Um, when it comes to breast health at UC San Diego, one person always comes to mind, and, and that is um, our uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Wallace. Um, she really needs no introduction. Dr. Wallace has been a leader in San Diego for more than um, 15 years. She is the director of our Comprehensive Breast Health Center, as was way of background, and completed a fellowship in microvascular cancer reconstruction at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, a residency in plastic surgery at UC San Diego, and a residency in general surgery at Georgetown University. Um, she earned her medical degree um, from Creighton University School of Medicine. And is unique in that she is um, board certified in both general surgery as well as in plastic surgery. Anne leads a team of more than 250 providers. She is dedicated to providing the highest quality care for our patients and their families. Please welcome Dr. Ann Wallace. Thank you, Dr. Brenner. What I'm going to start out doing is introducing the team and telling you a little bit about why UC San Diego's Best Comprehensive Breast Health Center is so amazing and some of the amazing things we're doing and that um, I couldn't exist without the team that Dr. Brenner just mentioned. So the overview of my portion of this talk is that I'm going to talk about our team. I'm going to say what makes us different. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we advance research and innovation training the next generation, and envisioning the future, which is what we embody every day in this program. Next slide. So we are truly a team. We are the longest history of multidisciplinary breast care in San Diego. I came here in 95 and we immediately started to build our team and it's continued to grow ever since. We meet weekly for all of our new breast patients and we meet every other week for all of our research endeavors and we live and breathe each other every day other than now we're wearing a mask, of course, doing that. <laughs> we are in a center all together. I don't have to send my patients somewhere else. We are 175 dedicated, talented, diverse colleagues um, that are representing all the different fields, surgical oncology, radiation oncology, medical oncology, imaging, et cetera. 
More than that, we have highly trained APPs, those are advanced practice providers, our PAs and our NPs, our dietitians, our social workers that help us get patients in fast and answer questions quickly and start the delivery of care. We are the only breast program within an NCI designated cancer center in San Diego. And we're also the only breast program that's led by a dual trained person, me, in both surgery, surgical oncology and plastic surgery. And that's put a different spin on the surgical treatment of breast cancer here and allowed us to realize in the field of surgery that it isn't always about doing more. It's about doing something that's right and making the patient whole and not always having to do aggressive mastectomies, et cetera. And then we have extensive support services, occupational therapy, wellness, nutrition, and that's just continuing to grow. We have massage every day. We have something that we're adding to the team. Next slide. What makes us different? So we are all together here right now. We're in the KOP uh, building. I'll show a picture of that in a minute. We have advanced outpatient imaging across the hall from us. Downstairs in our basement is our outpatient surgery where we can do the bulk of breast care. We have a dedicated infusion center, which is uh, directly down the hall from our from our clinic, and we have low, we have advanced uh, care in every aspect of breast diseases, specifically things like inflammatory breast cancer and young triple negative breast cancer that take huge expertise in clinical trials uh, in order to handle that. We have everything here. Next slide. What also makes us difference is clinical trials to change the course of care. We don't just participate in trials, we design the trials. We sit on the committees that change the trials. ISPY2 is a huge trial that we've been involved with for now nine years uh, in collaboration with UCSF and several other institutions. It's called an adaptive clinical trial, which means that immunotherapy drugs change depending on the patient's biology and depending on how successful those drugs are. Several of my medical oncologists are, are on the development of the new drugs. They are in the development of the trials. Uh, they are managing the, the IRB portion of it. They are at the center of the trial with UCSF. We are not just participating. We are making the trial ha happen. The WISDOM trial is another trial that um, leaders here in our breast program uh, are, are key to the development of. The WISDOM trial is a study that is trying to figure out who really needs screening, how at risk you are, and, and negotiating the screening based on your risk instead of just the, the fact that you're a woman. Uh, this is a highly successful trial that's enrolled thousands of people. And then we have multiple other trials, including phase one trials for advanced disease, so that patients who are stage four and metastatic, that, that we have hope for them to live many, many more months, years, or whatever, based on the drugs that we have available for them. We have advanced cancer rehabilitation and support services. We have a, a PM&R service here, which is physical medicine and rehab, lymphedema services. We have a microvascular surgeon with expertise in, in lymphedema. And, and finally, we are part of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is the NCCN, which makes the guidelines for breast cancer. And every team here in the Morris Cancer Center, including breast, has faculty members that are on that NCCN committee. So we are making the guidelines, not just enforcing the guidelines. Next slide. This is our picture of our Coleman outpatient pavilion that we moved into in March of 2018, of which we are most of the top floor imaging clinic, uh, infusion, and then our operating rooms downstairs. Next slide. 
We are also developing a big presence in Hillcrest so that we can better serve our South Bay patients and our downtown patients. Uh, a new outpatient pavilion is under development down there, and we are starting. We have been seeing patients down there in the clinic, and we have a revamped infusion center, and we recently just opened imaging in Hillcrest. Next slide. Some examples of what we do. Um, I want to just give a, 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 a kind of a quick patient example of why we're a little bit different. Next slide. In the past, it was very easy um, to walk into a surgeon's office as a 58-year-old patient. This particular patient had a large triple negative breast cancer, a very biologically aggressive tumor. She was mistaken in thinking that she could avoid radiation and avoid chemotherapy by just asking for bilateral mastectomies. And unfortunately, wherever she was in whatever community she was, the surgeon told her that was okay, let's go do bilateral mastectomies and maybe you can avoid all those things. Her family members, encouraged her to come for a second opinion. And we had to undo the misinformation she had. Then unfortunately, as a surgeon, I'm not the one curing this disease most of the time. Most of the time, it's my colleagues in medical oncology and radiation oncology. So we actually, after a lot of explaining and a lot of uh, teaching her what breast cancer is all about, enrolled her into the iSpy trial. And she got at the time, one of the new PARP inhibitors. She ended up having a complete pathologic response and just needed a small lumpectomy and did not need to remove both her breasts. Removing both her breasts would have been more surgery than she needed to fight her disease. Next slide. So every facet of care is advancing here at UCSD. And it's easy for a lot of programs to say that, but we really are doing it. Dr. Egadari is gonna to talk to you about advanced imaging. We're not just doing MRI and mammogram, we're doing artificial intelligence, we're doing new, new things with PET scanning, et cetera. Medical oncology, Dr. Chatsky is gonna to speak to that. It's defining the care. We are, we are curing disease, we are keeping metastatic patients alive for many years. Uh, we are constantly bringing new innovations to that. Genetic counseling changes what we do every day. You know, every day there's a new, new uh, genetic abnormality and how do we deal with that? It's not just more surgery. We need to figure out how that affects the patient care. And then from my standpoint, the surgical advances are constantly advancing. Um, we're doing more and more breast conservation because we really think based on retrospective data that there's actually slightly better survival with breast conservation than there is with mastectomy. Because of that, we're adding advanced oncoplastic techniques for very large defects, nipple sparing mastectomies, flap reconstruction, et cetera. So a lot of times if someone even has a big tumor, like tomorrow I'm taking out a very big tumor in a patient, but I'm gonna do it through a breast reduction. So she can be one and done and on with her life after her surgery. Next slide. We are advancing research and innovation. So um, our vision is to drive the puck forward, not just to be chasing the puck, as somebody just said to me the other day. And how do we do so much research? Well, we have this huge body of, of researchers behind us, not just in our breast program and in the cancer center, but all of UCSD. Uh, I'm doing research with a bioengineer right now. Uh, we're doing research with people across the aisle in hematology. Our lab scientists are all over the place and we're constantly interacting with them. Next slide. We also train the next generation. So you have to be pretty good, darn good to do that because our next generation is incredibly smart. We have medical oncology fellows that rotate. We have breast fellowships that, that rotate with us, plastic surgery residents constantly having students from here and um, other places. And these trainees are usually in the 99th percentile of whatever class they graduated from. And so they keep us on our toes. Next slide. We are envisioning the future constantly. And this is my last slide, just to say that breast 
is not just uh, what the obvious sees shows us, but we I look at developing a world where breast care uh, is cutting edge for everybody that walks in. And for me now, that also includes things like our transgender population. I also do transgender chest reconstruction surgery, and I've come to realize that we don't know how to screen them in the future. We don't know what the chronic hormone use is going to do for other cancers that might develop. We need a whole program where we can evaluate what their cancer risk and what their cancer management might be. That's just one more idea of thinking outside the box. And I think that that's what our whole program does. It's never good enough to be just good. We have to constantly constantly be moving the needle forward. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne, both for your leadership and for giving a, a great talk. It's now my pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Mohamed um, Ektadari. Um, he is um, a board-certified diagnostic radiologist who specializes in imaging and um, in managing the most challenging cases of breast cancer, including recurrent breast cancer. He is skilled in all forms of diagnostic imaging, including mammography, ultrasound, MRI, and breast-specific gamma imaging. He also performs a variety of procedures related to breast health, including biopsies and preoperative localizations. His research focuses on improving early detection and screening of breast cancer. Prior to joining um, UCSD in 2015, he was an assistant professor of radiology at the University of Texas, MD Anderson. He completed a fellowship in breast imaging at MD Anderson and a residency in diagnostic radiology at UC San Diego. He holds a doctorate in biomedical engineering from the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. A fun fact is that um, he is a um, flyer of um, single engine planes. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce um, um, Dr. Mo um, Egatari. Hello everyone, my name is Mohamed Ektadari. I'm one of the radiologists at UC San Diego and it's a great pleasure for me to be here with you and talking to you about our breast imaging center. Our central office is located on the third floor of Coman Outpatient Pavilion. We have satellite offices at Rancho Bernardo and at Hillcrest. We do all conventional breast imaging and procedures including a wire-free surgical localization. For that, we use a device that's called Savvy Scout. It's basically a tiny transmitter that receives infrared light from a probe that you can put outside from the outside on top of the skin, and then it emits some radio frequency that can be detected. As you can see, it's a small device, about 12 millimeter by one or two millimeters inside the needle that you can see in the left lower corner of this uh, screenshot, and then the device has a probe, and you put the probe right on top of that device, it will beep and guide the surgeon. We can use this needle to put those transmitters exactly where we want the surgeon to go and resect the tissue. Um, on the right upper corner, you can see that device next to the marker clip at the site of cancer, for instance. Breast cancer is probably the most regulated field of medicine all aspects of breast imaging, including how you take an image and how to report it, are tightly regulated by federal laws, and there are detailed guidelines for the management of breast cancer. Because of that, there is a large amount of information, in usually in the epic chart of the patient, electronic chart of the patient, that we need to read each time that the patient comes to our breast clinic because based on those information, we can define what is the next step for the patient in terms of the treatment. A careful review of those detailed 
information that exists in the chart takes a lot of time and is time consuming. So we thought that artificial intelligence can help us. Artificial intelligence has revolutionized our life and our breast imaging is not an exception. The first application of computer sciences in breast imaging goes back to 1998, 22 years ago, when FDA approved the use of CAD, computer-aided detection for detection of cancer on mammograms. Since then, several versions of CAD software has been developed, and we are using them in clinic every day. But none of them looks at the clinical information of the patient. An expert radiologist combines the images of the mammogram with the clinical information to determine whether some finding is suspicious or not. But the CAD only looks at the image and analyzes the image. That's the shortcoming of that one. We thought that now is the time to combine the clinical information with the image using artificial intelligence so that the CAD can more accurately tell us whether some findings are suspicious or not. Natural language processing is a branch of artificial intelligence that can be used here. We can use natural language processing to read the clinical note of patients and extract pieces of information. However, the currently available algorithms for natural language processing that are developed based on analysis of natural language of the Wikipedia or the literature, English literature, are not usable to analyze the text of clinical notes because the terminology and the grammar that is used in the clinical notes are different. So we had a discussion with Dr. Wallace a while ago regarding this, and she was kind enough to support a project um, on the artificial intelligence in breast clinic. We uh, found collaborators from uh, UCSD Computer Sciences, from Radiology, and from Breast Clinic, and then we got approval from IRB uh, authorities, and we downloaded all of the clinical notes of our breast cancer patient, about 12,000 patients who have been seen in the clinic in the last like 10, 12 years. We collected all of the clinical notes. We have transferred them to a secure workstation, a HIPAA-compliant uh, workstation that's provided by ACTRI for us. And as we speak, we are analyzing those clinical notes by artificial intelligence to train the natural language processing algorithm to train them so that they can extract pieces of information for us. These pieces of information could be an assessment, for instance, whether the patient had a lump, had some nipple discharge, developed some skin changes. It could be some of the plans that were made for the patient. For instance, obtaining a mammogram is a plan, or performing a surgery is a plan, or some events that happens throughout the journey of the patient that goes uh, through the breast cancer detection and treatment, for instance staging of breast cancer, starting of a chemotherapy. That's an event that happens through the journey. So as we speak, we are training the natural language processing software to detect these items from the clinical notes. And when it's trained, we're going to use it for three important things. One is that we're going to have the software to summarize the patient's most important and most relevant information for breast cancer for the clinicians and for radiologists. So that when we have a new patient in the clinic, that software goes and reads all of the clinical notes from past and saves us time because it will tell us the summary that we will need to know. The second one is that it can track patients. For instance, if there was a patient that was supposed to have some 
some tests done and it hasn't been done yet, that software can re recognize that and bring it to the attention of us so that we can go and figure out what happened to this patient, why the MRI was not done, why the biopsy was not done. And the third thing is that this clinical information will provide some kind of digitized information so that we can put it next to the computer-aided detection software that looks at the image. So at the moment, there are many software that look at the image, for instance, a mammogram or breast MRI to tell us whether there is a cancer or not. But they don't know anything, those software don't know anything about the clinical information. If the natural language processing can go and get the summary of patient's chart, then we can put that summary next to the image and then train the CAD software to look at both the images and the clinical information. Then that software can really help us to take care of our patient in breast cancer. So this is what we are doing now. Breast imaging, are very, we are very excited about the results, and hopefully soon we will share the results of that with you. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce a, um, a new faculty member, a new star at UC San Diego, Dr. Dominique Rash. She received her medical degree from the George Washington University and completed her radiation oncology residency at UC Davis. Um, she has clinical expertise in breast cancer, topic of this discussion, but also in other um, gynecological cancers, gastrointestinal tumors, and brachytherapy. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Resch. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's absolutely my pleasure to be a part of this symposium here today. As mentioned, I'm in the Department of Radiation Oncology here at UCSD. And I'd like to just go over with you all in general, just some information about radiation oncology, which tends to be a field that's not discussed as much as some of the others, but is really a quite integral part of treatment for breast cancer, really multiple cancers. And what we do is um, treat cancer based on the exposure of the tissues at risk or the tissues with tumor cells to radiation. It was originally discovered back in the early 1900s, and today we are devoted to treatment of both benign and malignant disease in adults and children. And there's a key distinction between radiology, which Dr. Edgari was able to go over with you all, and radiation oncology. What we do in radiation oncology is use high energy X-rays, which are very similar, but different from the low energy X-rays used in radiology for imaging purposes. Our high energy x-rays are actually able to cause damage to the DNA within cancer cells. And that DNA damage destroys their ability to reproduce. Now, normal healthy tissues can also be affected by radiation, but they have the ability to identify the DNA damage from radiation and repair that injury and go on to produce new healthy cells that can replace the injured cells. Now we use a number of different techniques to deliver radiation therapy. Here I have pictured a linear accelerator that we use for external beam radiation, which delivers photons from the outside into the region that we're concerned about. So a patient would lay here on this table and it would be directed underneath the head of the machine where the photons exit. There's a bunch of different techniques that we can use with a linear accelerator to deliver the radiation one of them is intensity modulated radiation, a type of radiation that's rapidly evolved over the last 10, 20 years and allows us to deliver highly targeted radiation 
to the area that is of concern while sparing the normal healthy tissue surrounding the tumors. We also use image-guided radiation therapy where we have actually um, a comb beam CT or an X-ray um, developer on the machine itself that can be used to verify the position of the patient every day during treatment. And then there's also stereotactic body radiotherapy, which is a technique where we give super high doses of radiation to small areas of treatment in what we call an ablative dose, which is analogous to surgery in that we just eradicate the tumor and achieve similar outcomes for areas that might otherwise be not amenable to surgery. The other type of radiation that we use is brachytherapy. Now, brachytherapy is taking a radioactive source, such as iridium-192 or iodine-125, and you see here a picture of these little pellets or seeds, which are no bigger than a grain of rice. And what we do is we place those seeds inside the body to deliver radiation on the inside out. Here on this radiograph, you can see a catheter that's been placed inside a patient's breast. And what we can do is take this little radioactive seed, drop it into the catheter on a wire, and let it sit inside the breast to deliver a volume of radiation that's very conformal, right wrapping around these catheters. So it's not necessarily treating the entire breast, but just a portion of the breast. And then because it's on a wire, we can remove that source after the treatment is completed. And that's called, as I mentioned, brachytherapy. Now with breast cancer, we're using radiation to prevent recurrence in the breasts or the surrounding lymph nodes after surgery. So after Dr. Wallace goes in, removes the tumor, we're trying to address any microscopic cancer cells that could be left behind. The majority of women that undergo a lumpectomy will also receive radiation therapy. For patients that get a mastectomy, however, we will treat with radiation depending upon how advanced the cancer is at the time of diagnosis or at the time of surgery. I have up here a few uh, photos showing a patient that's being treated for a left-sided breast cancer. And you can see here in red how our radiation fields are trying to primarily target the left breast tissue. And there's very little radiation that's going to the rest of the body. In fact, now that we do CT imaging with all of our radiation treatments, we're able to see the breast, I mean, sorry, the heart, which is centered under the left side of the chest or under the left breast, and we can create our fields such that the dose curves around the heart and avoid radiation to the heart as much as possible. Now, there is a large volume of normal healthy tissue in the breast that's getting exposed to radiation because these cancer cells could be kind of hidden throughout the breast tissue. And so what we wanna do is treat you with radiation as gently as possible. So the radiation is given in small daily treatments, five days a week for three to six weeks. And our radiation team is made up of not only physicians, nurses, and therapists, but also physicists and dosimetrists that work behind the, team, uh, the scenes. Our physicists are making sure the machines are delivering the radiation dose that we expect to deliver. And our dosimetrists help us create our treatment plans. So in summary, roughly two-thirds of all cancer patients will see radiation at some point during the course of their care. Now, radiation can cause cancer cells to die and cause injury to normal healthy cells, but the healthy cells can repair radiation injury. 
It's a targeted therapy that's preventing local recurrence. And we have ongoing research dedicated to identifying which patients may eventually avoid radiation therapy. So for example, looking at patients with one to three lymph nodes involved at the time of surgery and seeing if based off of their Oncotype DX score, which is a prognostic gene expression signature, whether or not they really need radiation therapy after they've undergone surgery. Additionally, we have other data and studies being published showing us that we could potentially treat with fewer doses of radiation over a, fewer, a shorter time period. And so that's really our goal, is to not only eliminate the cancer cells, but to preserve the best quality of life possible for the patient long-term. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank you, Dominique. It's now my pleasure to introduce our, um, our final presentation. <clears throat> this is by um, Dr. Um, Rebecca Shatsky. Um, she is a board-certified medical oncologist and specializes in treating high-risk and rare breast cancers. She uses numerous treatments such as chemotherapy, hormone therapy, biologics, and targeted therapy to offer the best treatment options for each patient. Um, she is part of the UC San Diego Health's Precision Immunotherapy Clinic which offers the most promising investigational immunotherapy treatments for many types of cancer. Dr. Shatsky um, completed a um, hematology oncology fellowship at UC San Diego. She was um, recognized as an outstanding oncology fellow by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. She completed a residency at UCLA, um, um, David Geffen School of Medicine, and um, earned her medical degree from the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Shatsky. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you. Breast cancer medical oncology is a gigantic field. Um, so what I'd really like to talk to you all about today mostly is how UCSD is different in breast cancer medical oncology, how they're innovative, and how we're leading the charge for things that are, you know, several years ahead of what would be considered typical guideline-based therapy. Um, and are able to deliver things that are pretty unique to the San Diego community because of that. One of the ways that our group of breast cancer medical oncologists, and there's six of us that treat breast cancer from the medical perspective, which is using hormonal therapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapies, and immunotherapy to treat the entire body that circulate throughout the system. And they either do one of two things. In early stage breast cancer, our goal, of course, is to cure the patient and hope that breast cancer will never come back and cause them distress any other time in their life. But also when patients either already come to us with advanced breast cancer, metastatic disease or stage four disease, or they develop that with us during the course of their therapy, that we can give them better quality of life and um, afford them much longer lives as well. And we do that through a personalized and precision oncology approach. At the top of my slide, you'll see that the old dogma of doing things in medical oncology was really, we just took a patient's tissue sample, looked under the microscope with the pathologist, stained the tissue, and then gave the patient chemotherapy. And that was pretty much it. Now we have this really multidisciplinary integrated approach. Um, and one of the things that my research focuses heavily on is using multi-omic analysis. And what do I mean by that? So we take the patient's blood, we take the patient's breast cancer tissue samples, whether that may be from their breast or another part of the body that the cancer has metastasized to, 
And we can do DNA and RNA and protein level analysis to ascertain what might be the best therapy for this specific person. What I tell my patients, um, every single patient that sees me in clinic, is that their breast cancer is unique, just as unique as their DNA. I don't have any two patients in my clinic I've ever seen that I treat exactly the same because no two tumors are exactly the same. Every single cancer has a specific set of mutations and amplifications in the DNA and RNA and protein level that drive cancer cell growth. And figuring out what those changes are is really kind of the be all and end all at getting to how we can control disease growth and hopefully how we can cure patients in the future. So um, one of the major advances that our group was early to adopt um, was the Taylor RX study that is, you know, kind of um, colloquial referred to as the Oncotep type DX trial. And this is one of the ways that you use personalized cancer medicine to determine the best treatments for women with early breast cancer. So what this trial did is it used lymph node negative breast cancers originally that were estrogen positive and HER2 negative. And it took each individual patient's tumor and by the expression of the DNA and RNA of the specific tumor, it just gave the patient a number on an oncotype scale. And that helped us determine whether the patient would benefit from the addition of chemotherapy or not. Uh, over the past 30 years, um, we did learn that the addition of chemotherapy does help certain breast cancer patients live longer and prevent metastasis. But what we've realized over the past five to 10 years is that many women actually do not benefit from chemotherapy. And there was always a one size fits all approach that all breast cancer patients got chemo. Well, now using the Oncotype DX um, assay, we are able to avoid chemo in a about 85% of early stage breast cancer patients, which is really phenomenal because when I give chemotherapy, I take that intervention extremely seriously. While I know that it has, a, these are very powerful medications that may be able to cure breast cancer, they're not without their risks and they're not without their side effects. And so each single patient that I decide on a chemotherapy plan for, if they have a multiomic analysis, I know that they will actually benefit. And I can explain to the patient, hey, this is why your specific breast cancer may or may not need chemotherapy. That doesn't mean that I'm, you know, curing 100% of breast cancer because of this. But I know that whatever treatment I am recommending to the patient is the right one for their breast cancer. And that gives me a great deal of peace of mind that we're not treating all patients the same. Our group was very early to adapt this um, using oncotypes, and we're actually a little bit more innovative in expanding this um, with some upcoming data to even lymph node positive breast cancer, which is um, making its way into breast cancer guidelines, but not quite there yet. So um, Dr. Wallace also mentioned our involvement in the iSpy2 clinical trial. Um, this is a trial that I, as someone who provides care to very high risk, young and aggressive breast cancers frequently participate heavily in. Similar to the oncotype that I mentioned, this trial, um, it uses patients that have 
already screened as being high risk for a similar assay called a mammoprint, um, which just differs in the genes that it uh, examines. And so these are patients that are very high risk for developing stage four breast cancer. And so they were all going to get chemotherapy anyway. And what the ISPY2 trial does is it uh, takes a series of investigational medications and adds it to the chemotherapy backbone that women were already going to get for their breast cancer. And so they're randomized to one of many arms that are available at that time. And some of those may be immunotherapies, some of those may be targeted therapies. It builds upon the best available therapy for their breast cancer. And we've been able to show through 10 years of data from this trial that now includes 27 different sites around the country and uh, over 3,100 patients and greater than 400 of those were at UCSD as we're the second highest enrolling site. But we've been able to graduate many of these agents that have led on to FDA approvals much faster than they would have been investigated otherwise. So it really leads to the rapid development of drugs that are potentially saving lives. One of our greatest achievements in the iSpy2 um, trial was in 2017, iSpy was really the first group to show that the addition of immunotherapy and specifically the drug pembrolizumab, which is, uh, goes under the brand name Keytruda, improves response to treatment when it's added to chemotherapy for early aggressive breast cancer. Um, this agent has been investigated now in over six different clinical trials, which have also concluded the same thing, but the ISPY2 trial was the first to do this. And we all in this field that treat this type of cancer do believe that this is likely to lead to FDA approval of immunotherapy in early stage breast cancer, likely within the next year. So um, now on to a big part of my practice, which is actually the treatment of advanced stage four or metastatic breast cancer. So one of the things that I, am, I think is really outstanding about our group at UCSD is that we've adopted this personalized and precision oncology approach to treating advanced cancer. And we don't do it when the patient has run out of options, when they have been through six lines of chemotherapy and are no longer you know, healthy enough for clinical trials or really innovative advanced therapies, we do it immediately. If a patient is diagnosed with advanced cancer, whether it's the moment they're diagnosed and they didn't have early stage breast cancer or they had stage four after the uh, stage one or two breast cancer, we go ahead and we sequence their tumor after an area is biopsied and we look for specific mutations. And then we also look for immune markers like PDL1 or tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Um, there's several other that are getting added to that list now. Um, one of my uh, clinical trials looks for the expression of a protein called ROR1, which is advanced, uh, expressed in some aggressive breast cancers. And then we try to find a clinical trial, either that we have at our institution or sometimes at other places, and match the patient to what we think the best available therapy will be. Sometimes that's the standard of care and that we can provide them. Sometimes it's a clinical trial, and we do have an enormous amount of really innovative um, phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials that um, we've participated in 
either as a single institution investigator initiated trial or in multi um, multinational trials and international trials that have led to drug development. Uh, so these are just a few of some of the recent developments in medical oncology for advanced breast cancer that have been approved in the past five years only. We've seen an amazing, amazing uh, acceleration in the rate of drugs that are being developed and being approved for breast cancer, which is truly a blessing for my patient population. The CDK46 inhibitors are now the standard of care for the most common type of uh, advanced breast cancer, which is estrogen positive, HER2 negative. There's three drugs in those in that class, and they're generally very well tolerated, and they double the overall survival of advanced breast cancer patients. The PI3 kinase inhibitors were just approved in 2019 in June. I use those quite frequently. Um, this year, in 2020 April, sachituzumab govotecan um, was the first antibody drug conjugate used in triple negative breast cancer, which has similarly been shown, and this is pretty novel, to double overall survival in triple negative breast cancer, which is truly a feat for this very aggressive subtype. Um, immunotherapy has been improved in combination for, with chemo for triple negative advanced stage four disease. HER2 positive breast cancer has seen two drug approvals just this year in HER2 and tucatinib. And then um, for BRCA1 or BRCA2 um, mutated breast cancer, there are two currently available oral medications called PARP inhibitors that are, have been shown to really give patients um, control of disease, but also excellent quality of life because they tend to be drugs that are well tolerated. So all of these things, I am super, super grateful to be able to use in my arsenal of medications in things that I can treat my patients with. Um, so when a patient comes to me, we develop a personalized approach and throughout their disease course, we reassess, we use things like liquid biopsy, circulating tumor DNA, circulating tumor cells, and constantly reassess the disease, which is what we need to do because um, in my opinion, cancer is really evolution and in um, rapid action that we can see. And just like bacteria, cancer develops resistance um, over time to the medications that you're using. And so we have to constantly reassess. Um, that's all I have for today. And I look forward to the question and answer period, but thank you so much for your attention today. Thank you, Becky. Um, we now are going to throw this open for questions. There've been a lot of questions. Um, Several, we'll start with Mo, several were directed at um, the tried and true um, mammography. So people want to know, Mo, what, is, what are your thoughts now about mammography? Does it overdiagnose patients? Um, and um, it, what would be the um, age which you'd start it? And does it have a role in, um, in younger patients, um, 35 to 45 years old? So that's a couple questions about mammography and where it fits in. Yeah, so mammography has shown in multiple large clinical trials um, inside and outside of the United States that it will save life and it will reduce the mortality of breast cancer. But it's not a perfect test. We know that. There are some limitations for mammography. For instance, when the ladies have extremely dense breast tissue, unfortunately, the sensitivity of mammography goes down. Also, some of the cancers develop in an area that are outside of the field of mammography. So no matter how good is your mammography, you are not going to see them. So with some limitations, 
we can see that about 80% of the time we can see the cancer with uh, doing a screening mammography. So it is a still a very useful test and has been a lot of research going on on determining what findings on mammography are benign, what findings are not benign and cancer or suspicious and is biopsy. So at the moment, the best test that we have available is mammography. But many of the groups are trying to find alternative tests such as the MRI or whole breast ultrasound or thermography or elastography and many other tests that may in the future replace or complement a mammography. But at the moment, the best one is a still mammography. So I would like ladies to take it serious and continue doing mammogram. If in the future, for instance, there is another test that we can see is as good as mammography or better than mammography, then we can replace it. For people who are high risk, we know that the mammography is not enough for them because of its limitation. So for those patients who have high risk, high um, strong family history, we usually suggest to do, for instance, a supplemental test, which would be breast MRI. Breast MRI can find more cancers than mammogram, but it comes with its own limitation too. So breast MRI also is not the perfect test, but it can complement mammography. Thank you. All right, um, for Dominique, there are a couple of questions. Um, one was, um, was when you do radiation therapy, is it true that you can only do it once for one breast? That, that if you have a recurrence or something else, you can't do it again and you need an alternative approach? So traditionally, we thought that we could only do radiation one time. But in fact, we know now from several patients that have had re-irradiation that we can safely re-irradiate patients. It just depends on what type of radiation they received before, what is the area we're trying to target now, and what sort of overlap we anticipate. Um, the biggest concern is just that with each course of radiation, we increase the risks of side effects. But we can, in fact, safely, and we do, we have treated patients with three radiation. Brachytherapy is one of the great tools that we can use to do that. Okay, that was that was my next question. So if someone else has a separate question, maybe the same person, um, about brachytherapy and where that fits in. Right, so for brachytherapy right now in breast cancer specifically, we're using it for patients that have low risk, small tumors that can be treated with a lumpectomy and we think don't have a high potential to spread to the lymph nodes. And so we can just treat a portion of the breast and that's where that catheter comes into play that I had shown a picture of earlier. I also had a picture up that I didn't go over that showed the dose distribution. And in that setting, you see a very nice conformal sphere of radiation. Um, and so it's really those low risk patients. If you're somebody who has lymph nodes involved or more extensive disease, then we really prefer treating the entire breast. Okay. Uh, here's one um, for Anne. Um, it says, um, what are the chances of recurrence of breast cancer after five years? So that's a big question. It kind of depends what you started with and what treatment you had, et cetera. So if you had a lumpectomy with clear margins and then went on to have radiation, then the chance of recurrence in the breast is probably in Dominique, you know, uh, you can uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere between probably six and 9% in the breast. And then if um, you still have an intact opposite breast and you're estrogen receptor positive, then your medical oncologist will encourage you to be on one of the endocrine therapies, either an estrogen receptor modulator like tamoxifen 
one aromatase inhibitor like Arimidex, and that will reduce your overall risk by about 50% of getting a breast cancer on the other breast. So it kind of depends your age and everything. Overall, we say without anything else done after surgery, if you just did a lumpectomy uh, and you never had radiation, you never had any endocrine therapy, it's about three quarters of a percentage per year of life of getting another one. But we usually always do something else that reduces that risk. If you have a mastectomy, you're down about 5% in that breast. So you're never at zero, even though somebody will tell you at zero or 1%, there's always cells that can be along the muscle or in the skin or something. So you're never at zero. And so that's why most patients, if they have reasonably sized tumors can have breast conservation because the in-breast recurrence is very similar and the opposite breast recurrence is usually mitigated with the medicines you're gonna take. Thank you. Just to add to that a little bit. So um, Dr. Wallace mentioned the in-breast recurrence. Um, each patient um, also has a risk, unfortunately, and sometimes after five years of developing stage four breast cancer, which is breast cancer that has spread from the original tumor into a different part of the body. And that specific risk is individual to the patient. It depends on their tumor biology. So when they get that oncotype score, if they had early breast cancer, it will give them a estimation of what at five, 10, and sometimes 15 years, um, the risk of them developing metastatic or stage four disease is. So that's unique for every single person and it depends on their tumor biology, how aggressive their original breast cancer was. Because breast cancer can recur and stage develop stage four disease sometimes 25 to 30 years later. Here's, here's a fun question from um, Larry Block. He says, um, if we were doing this conference five years from now, what would be the big breakthrough? What's on the horizon for breast cancer, um, both diagnostic and therapy? Well, I would say from therapy standpoint, I think there's going to be patients we're not operating on at all. Um, and Becky, thank you so much for talking about the distant disease. I don't know why that slipped my mind when I was talking about recurrence, because that's really what's in your breast isn't what's going to um, harm somebody. It's really what's outside of their breast that's going to harm them. Um, and so there's going to be a day where our agents are so good. I mean, 70% of patients who are ER2 new positive that get Herceptin-based therapy will have a complete pathologic response and we're operating on their breasts for no reason. So I think the next study is to figure out who we really need to do surgery on and who we don't. So I, I think in five years, there's going to be certain cancers we don't operate on. Any, any, any other ideas? Mo, you want to say what's going to be, what, what do you be doing in five years for diagnosis? I think uh, there was another question too regarding that one is that probably we're going to go toward the uh, tests that are looking at the circulating markers. Those are more important than what is happening locally in the breast for a screening only when, for instance, those liquid biopsy, when those biomarkers or circulating markers are abnormal, then go and do a very specific test for breast uh, or other organs to do what. That's one in terms of imaging. Probably it's one of the um, big uh, subjects that people are looking for. Very good. Here's a, a real surgical question for Anne. <laughs> um, it says, um, how do you decide on um, um, when you're doing surgery for radical um, mastectomy versus double mastectomies versus um, what kind of survival rates do you expect if you do different types of surgeries? Um, and then um, what kind of follow-up do you do after the surgeries? So there is actually no sorry that was a lot question there. There's no survival rate on on whatever kind of surgery you do. So even in our BRCA patients, 
Um, the meta-analysis for our very young BRCA patients show maybe that there's a slight survival benefit if you do it when you're like 25, but even that has been disputed now. Um, so that the amount of surgery, no matter who you are, does not change survival. All surgery really does is control locally the disease and give everybody else information on what they need to do in order to help cure the disease. So where we make a big difference is where maybe uh, stage zero breast cancer, uh, where we eradicate that, or in prevention, we can lower the risk of ever getting breast cancer, but none of that ever affects survival. So in our program here, um, we really stress that. And I think um, one of the things in the United States is, you know, you know, the way insurances and everything, we are, you know, we are still valued by the amount of surgery we do. And sometimes it's hard to say no to things. But I really believe that too much surgery in certain patients creates chaos, and that chaos is irreversible um, and may cause harm to the patient's cancer. I don't want to do aggressive surgery on someone who has an aggressive cancer. Uh, that's where I want to just get in and out and get that tumor out just so that the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist can then do their job. And that's very contrary to what people think. People still think that cancer, you got to just cut it out and destroy it. And that's how we get rid of it. I wish that was true. Then I would have so much power of as, as a surgeon, but I don't. So I really highly encourage breast conservation as much as possible. If the emotions of a patient are such that they can't live with that, then obviously we'll, we'll revert to mastectomies. Or if a patient has such diffuse disease in the breast that we can't get it out without it still looking good. Thank you. Here's a good question for Becky. Um, what's the role now of genetic counseling? Um, um, what do you do? What do you look at? And, and who do you do it for? Yeah. So, um, Usually the way that patients get referred for genetic counseling and genetic testing in um, our clinics are if they're a very young patient, because the, the guidelines um, are made up by organizations like the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And um, I sit on the uh, panel of board that kind of makes those guidelines. And so that kind of determines what insurance will cover as far as genetic testing for patients who have breast cancer or who have a family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, because those are uh, can be related. And so what happens is if it's a very young patient, they automatically get referred to our genetic counselors and for genetic panel testing. If they uh, are slightly older, and that means between the ages of 45 and 50, then they have to meet one more criteria to have insurance cover the panel testing. And if they're older than that, um, there are very specific criteria. But we, in general, as a group, very much encourage genetic testing. And so if patients are looking to have genetic panel testing and their insurance says that they do not meet criteria to pay for it, then we encourage them to actually go on their own and go to websites, either like Color Genomics, like Dr. Wallace mentioned in her um, response, or um, a company called Invitae, where you can pay out of pocket for reasonable prices. And if the patient does test positive for a mutation using those saliva kits that they can order to their home, then um, the, the companies will actually provide genetic counseling to the patients about how to go about managing that risk. Great, thank you. Um, here is a, another one for Becky. So what's the relationship between PARP inhibitors and BRCA1 and BRCA2? Yes, so um, 
Uh, PARP inhibitors are, and there's two drugs um, that are currently FDA approved for the treatment of advanced breast cancer, stage four breast cancer with PARP inhibitors. So the drug Olaparib and the drug Talazoparib are FDA approved. Another drug, which is called Viliparib, is currently in phase three clinical trial and will likely be approved in the next year. There's also a trial that is likely to report out this year that uses Olaparib to look and see if it will help prevent the development of stage four breast cancer in early stage breast cancer patients that have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. That trial is called Olympiad. And so we're hoping to hear results for that by the end of the year. There was a question about using PARP inhibitors um, that I saw in reply to in previvors. And a previvor, for those that doesn't know, um, are those who carry the BRCA1 or 2 mutation but have not yet developed breast or ovarian cancer. And so um, my response to that is that I don't know that those drugs will ever be used in that specific population because the truth is the toxicity may be actually a bit too high to risk treating a patient who's never developed breast cancer because these drugs, while well tolerated for someone with stage four disease compared to chemo, they do have fatigue, they cause low blood counts, they can cause nausea. And so subjecting someone who doesn't actually have cancer to that is a, is a big undertaking. Thank you. We have time for one more question. Let me um, direct this one to Mo. Several people have asked about if, you, if mammography is not useful, for example, if you have dense um, breast tissue, w- w- how do you follow those patients and what do you do instead? Well, it is, um, we have to say it's not that mammography is not useful. It's still finding a lot of cancer, but the sensitivity is less when they're in dense breast tissue. But still many of the patients who have cancer, they develop calcifications in their cancer. And that calcification can be seen despite on the mammogram, despite the density of the breast. No matter how dense it is, you can see the calcification. Um, Now, there is a debate. I answered the question. uh, There is a debate. What should we do on top of the mammogram? There are some research that they show that MRI would be great. The problem with MRI is that it will find a lot of cancers for sure. The problem is that one availability of that, we don't have enough MRI to do screening for everybody who has a dense breast in the United States. And the insurance companies are not paying for that. That's number one. Number two is that it will result in multiple unnecessary biopsy because the breast MRI does not have a specificity, means that it shows the cancer, but also it shows a lot of things that are benign as suspicious, and then you don't have any option but to biopsy that. The second option is whole breast ultrasound. Whole breast ultrasound, again, like MRI, finds a lot of cancers that are missed by mammogram on dense breast tissue specifically. That is true. The problem is that it is even worse than MRI in terms of its specificity, means that it will result in many more, many more unnecessary biopsies. So at the moment, there is a debate on what to do on the patient who have dense breast tissue. There is no good answer for that, unfortunately. And uh, some, some um, places suggest to do whole breast ultrasound. Other places say that only the clinical breast exam when the patients are aware of their body and the um, uh, mammogram together would be enough. Um, and some places uh, like what we do is that we, we calculate the risk of the patient for having a breast cancer, lifetime risk of them. And then based on that, decide whether to go with MRI or not. So our option is to do MRI for high-risk patient when we can do that on top of the mammogram. 
Let, let me see. Unfortunately, there's no good answer for that question. That, that, that was a very good answer. Thank you. <laughs> let me sneak in one more quick question. The, the question was, if you're not a UC San Diego health patient, but you want to be enrolled in a clinical trial, what, what should you do? How could you do that? Anyone can take it. <laughs> you all know the answer. Yeah. So um, we're for, first of all, we're happy to you know see somebody in opinion. Um, it's it's a difficult one. Sometimes the um, there's there are parts of the trial that are covered by the trial for sure, but there are also parts of trials that are standard of care. Um, and if you're in, if your uh, provider or where wherever you get your healthcare doesn't cannot give you access to that trial, sometimes they will release you uh, and allow you to participate in the trial. Certain very advanced phase ones, uh, though, that will be built into the budget of it. But for the most part, it is kind of an in individual basis, um, you know, with each trial. Um, Becky, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so the general process, so anyone who's looking and considering a clinical trial um, can uh, go to our breast, comprehensive breast well website and register as a new patient um, and then see us for an opinion. Um, and whether it's a clinical trial in surgery, medical oncology or radiology, all of us um, can kind of assist patients, but we do need to see the patient for consultation to decide if they're an appropriate trial candidate and decide what trials that they're actually eligible for. And um, in sometimes um, your institution, if you don't have insurance that covers UCSD, will allow you to receive therapy if they cannot provide you that therapy on at UCSD, but all of our trials are conducted on the UCSD campus, so you would be receiving care there as our patient during that time. Right. We did not, as I expected, get answer all the questions. So the um, advancement people will help us, and they will get you the questions, and you can email the answers, the ones we can get to. But you guys all did fantastic. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to work with you, and you got a very good response from, from everyone. So thank you so much, and you should be very proud of your program and the great health care you're giving. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.